Good morning. I'd like for you to do two things. Number one, have your Bible handy. Number two, to have your little note thing handy there in the bulletin and fill in the blanks as we go. But I would say probably thirdly, you ought to buckle in because we're going to travel, cover some ground this morning. It's good to be back up here and stand before you. And several folks will ask me occasionally, uh, how are you handling things not being in the pulpit? And I say, well, you know, it's kind of like when you read the first chapters of the book of Acts. You'll read about Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And then there's a very subtle changeover and it starts becoming Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And that's kind of how I look at things. And so I'm, I'm content to be Barnabas and just stay in the background and, and do that and uh, take care of the other business that needs doing. But it's good to stand before you on occasion and have a chance to share with you. Would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning and thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Father, at this time of the year when the world will focus their attention and finally speak about him and want to acknowledge, it's so sad that there are so many who want to dethrone him, to get rid of him, to not speak of him. But Father, we, like the apostles of old, we must speak of that which we have seen and heard, what we've seen in your word, what we've heard you say to us through that word. We have to talk about Jesus. And I thank you for this opportunity, Father. And may the focus of my lesson and my words and my thoughts be about Jesus only. May we honor you, glorify his name, and lift up each one of us in faith as we do this and proceed through this lesson. Help me and guide me, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a saying... Among the British, as I understand it, that uh, all roads in England will lead back to London eventually. I've not spent enough time in England to know if that's true or not, but I do know this. I do know that no matter where you are in the Bible, every passage will lead to Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is spend a little bit of time studying to find out that's true. He's the difference between having a mundane, self-centered ordinary existence, and having a life that's full, that's satisfied, and that means something not only in this realm, but in the one to come. He is the one who helps us face our darkest hours and do it victoriously. He is the one to whom we come, and he will meet us on our own level because he is our Savior, the Savior, and the only Savior. He is the God-man And the man God, he is Jesus Christ. I think it's good to spend time and go back occasionally and to look at his identity a little bit more and to look at who he is. And I I mistitled the lesson this morning. I should have entitled it, Who is this Jesus? Because I'm going to ask that over and over and emphasize that through this lesson. So we're going to look at the idea of who Jesus is And we're going to do it on two or three areas. So if you'll follow along with me, and we'll kind of note some scriptures and some references, we'll pick out three main areas that I think are very, very important concerning the Christ. And first of all, we'll look at the precedent of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew chapter 21 and verse 10. When he came into Jerusalem, the scriptures say, all the city was moved and saying, who is this? Who is this? And I'm not surprised that they would ask that. They've been asking that throughout his ministry. He's making his triumphal entry into the city now. But prior to this, it had been asked over and over, sometimes with a little bit different wording, but the same question. In Luke chapter 4, for example, as he speaks in the synagogue, he sits down, and after he finishes going through everything that's there, they will ask, is this not Joseph's son? Who is this? When you watch him as he travels through and, and goes through all of the, uh, the other areas of his ministry, on one occasion, he calms the storm. And they will ask, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this one? And he's been having that effect on people for over 2,000 years. They still ask that question. Sometimes it's with a different inflection on it, but they still ask because he has touched and haunted the thinking of millions for so many centuries. I like to refer to him as the watershed in his incarnation. A watershed is where uh, that point where the waters divide and the streams flow in different directions from one another. And in our country, they will start to flow uh, east to the Atlantic Ocean or west to the Pacific Ocean. A watershed, it, it divides things. Jesus Christ is the greatest watershed of all humanity of all time. For when you look at him and you consider what's involved with him, his appearance into space and time, has affected the human course and direction, and everything has been changed since then. He is the one by whom we, we look and, and we, we look at the calendar. And we go back and we talk about before Christ or in the year of our Lord. And it flows back, it flows forward. He split history in two. Every, every historical thing that's dated is dated with reference to his coming. And his influence is still a dominating matter. His power is still to be reckoned with, more so than anyone else who has ever lived. This figure, for this figure, multitudes are still willing to die today. They will gladly, willingly put their lives on the line. Anyone who's ever encountered him is not going to be the same. You may still reject him, but you can't deny him. Who is this, they would ask, on the street corners of Jerusalem? What are we to think of him? What are we to make of him? And in life, and in history, and in your life particularly, all that's deep, all that's meaningful, all of your experiences, it still forces us to ask, who is this Jesus? He's the revelation in the incarnation. Christianity... And the scriptures, first and foremost, are a message from God and about God. It's not primarily a new ethic. It's not a gospel of a brotherly love and kindness. It's not a message about loving your neighbor or accepting the golden rule. It's not about a social program. 
It's not about anything else, a philosophy or a message about human virtues and ideals at all. All of those things are in there, but first and foremost, it's a message from God, about God, through Jesus Christ, and then it touches all those other areas. That's how important Jesus is to affect all of that. Once and for all, God breaks through the barrier and comes into our realm. He comes into a place where he speaks to us and he gives us this final revelation concerning himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, in 1 through 3, the writer would say, in times past he spoke in a lot of different ways, a lot of different methods, but he has spoken to us now in these days in a son. That's his final revelation to all of mankind. And such is uh, the drama of that statement. To get our attention to help us realize there's no room for any other spiritual guidance. There's no room for any other kind of religious thought if it's outside of Jesus Christ. There's no spiritual coexistence with other beliefs. It's all about Jesus. Who is this man? Sometimes I think familiarity kind of dulls the wonder of all of that for us. And when you go back and read through the scriptures, like the song we sung a while ago, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. One of the first songs I ever learned as a Christian. And it touched me then and it touches me now. And it's still hard for me to get past it without emotion when it says, Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. Don't let familiarity dull the wonder of that. Who is he about whom all these amazing things are said and all these wonders are viewed? I want to say this morning for one thing, he is the carpenter warrior. I love that phrase and that idea. His home was an obscure provincial village, born in a stable, Alongside a roadside inn. No wealth, no official position. For the greater part of his life, he was a working carpenter. He was a rough carpenter. Not like the carpenters today. You know, you go down to Home Depot, Lowe's, get your materials, come on back. He went and cut his own materials, and he fashioned them himself. That's the kind of life he lived. He wrote no books. He didn't fight any earthly battles. He didn't hear any applause because of political speeches. He didn't command popular masses. His friends were almost as poor as himself. They were made up of fishermen and tax collectors and the like. When he left home and started his public ministry and his preaching, his own physical family said, don't do that. As a matter of fact, they said, he's crazy. That's the way they viewed him. Theologians, clever people, scoffed at what they thought was his illiteracy. The crowds would gather. They would listen inquisitively. And then they would want their selfish desires fulfilled. It wasn't about him. It's about what he can do for us. John would finally say in John 6 that Jesus would turn and ask of his disciples, What about you? After all the others had left, will you also go away? And it finally dawned on me, 
I'm amazed that he had to even ask them that. But he did it for their own good. Do you really know who this Jesus is? Do you really know who I am? And he went along with his life. And finally, he died a felon's death. He was reviled. He was executed. He hung between two thieves, was buried in a borrowed grave. And then something fascinating happened. It was rumored he's alive. He's raised from the dead. He had been seen by others. His disciples all of a sudden started appearing in the streets and talking about this. And they wouldn't be quiet. They said the carpenter of Nazareth was now at the right hand of God in heaven. And God had been uniquely present in him all along. Then in life and death and life again, the unseen had become visible. The eternal had become historic. God had indeed become human. And not surprisingly, the world hearing all of that laughed. They scorned it. They did it then. They still do it now. There were a lot of theories. They said, well, the body's been taken. In Acts 2, they said, you know, these guys talking about Jesus, they're drunk. They still thought they were crazy. They took the message of the risen Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, as Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 said they would do. They were his witnesses. But the extraordinary thing, didn't matter what the laughter was, didn't matter about the force of the arguments of the philosophers. Didn't matter about the force that they tried to level against them physically. They kept on going and speaking and living and dying for Jesus. And what really happened when all was said and done is that Jesus stopped Rome dead in her tracks. Dead in her tracks. When the dust and the ashes settled, the splendor of Rome was no more. But the empire of God kept spreading. It kept spreading. Who is this Jesus, this Galilean carpenter? He's Jehovah Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 63, one of my favorite pictures is a picture prophesied of Jesus coming back from Bozrah. He's a warrior riding a horse. His garments are bloody from fighting his enemies. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, He's pictured there as a Parthian warrior. There was one group of people, the Romans, well, more than that, but there was one in particular they never could deal with, the Parthians. So how fitting that he's pictured in Revelation 19 as a Parthian warrior, and he would fight them. He's the carpenter warrior. That's who Jesus is. The word Lord in the Old Testament came to be a substitute for the word Jehovah, Yahweh. Now they dared to apply that name to this Galilean carpenter. Is that who he is? Were they dreaming? Were they, were they just romancing? Was it a foolish fancy? Was it true? If it's true, we're responsible to see, is this really who he is? And how we're going to respond to that. It's no wonder in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, he said, Look, you go ahead and judge for yourself whether it's right in the sight of God to deal with us for what we're doing. But we can't stop speaking about the things we have seen and heard. This warrior carpenter, this Jesus, that's the precedent. And secondly, consider the person of Christ. 
in his personality. His personality is so full of contradictions. It was fun to go back and and just see that again in my studies. He's the meek and lowliest of all people. And yet he said he would come riding on the clouds of heaven and the glory of God. He was so austere that the evil spirits and the demons would cry out in terror at his presence. And yet he was so genial and so winsome that the little children came to him, wanted to play with him, wanted to crawl up in his lap. His company at the village wedding was welcome. And yet the teachers of the law got to the point where they wouldn't even ask him questions. They were afraid to, the way he dealt with it. No one was ever so kind and compassionate in dealing with sinners and people with needs, but no one ever spoke such red-hot words in condemning sin as Jesus did. He wouldn't break the bruised reed Isaiah would prophesy. And yet he loved all kinds of people. On one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees, how do you expect to escape the damnation of hell the way you're doing things? Such a contradiction. He was the servant of all. He would wash all of his disciples' feet, even Judas. And yet he would go into the temple with a whip made, and he would crack that thing and not just pop it in the air, but on the backs of of those hucksters and those scammers and schemers. And they would trip over themselves to run out of there. He saved others, but at the last, he really couldn't save himself. He wouldn't save himself. There's nothing in history like the contrast that confronts you in the Gospels when you read about Jesus. Who is he? Who is this man? Look at him in his power. He takes a deadly cross and turns it into a victorious throne. And it's marked the centuries. He raised the dead. He healed uh, the lame. He cast out the demons. He caused mighty Roman soldiers to drop in their tracks in his presence. Merely by saying, I'm the one you're looking for. What an incredible power. Empires have gone down before him because he really is the king of kings. I was reading in a history book the other day about that old phrase, how it was used in the old Persian days, the king of kings. It's no wonder Jesus is called that. There is no king above him. No empire above him. And he continues to march his people on as Christian soldiers. The poet Emerson would say about him, his name is not so much written as plowed into the history of the world. That's quite a statement. The name that troubles today is still Jesus of Nazareth. There is not... Has not been, nor is there, nor will there ever be any world leader or power who can shout Jesus off the pages of history. He will always be there. After 2,000 years, we still baptize in his name. We still invoke his blessings when when, when love and marriage come. We, We bring all of our troubles to his altar. And when it's all over, it's beneath his cross and before his empty tomb that we lay our dead. And we still take his message of eternal hope 
and we're comforted by it. And we share it with others who need comforting. Thousands of times he's broken the chains of, of evil habits, set prisoners free, put energy and victory back into wasted lives, and given them hope again. There are those in this church who will say unfailingly that everything they are, everything they have, everything they hope to be, every victory they've ever won, every thought of holiness is to be attributed only to Jesus Christ through their experience in their life with him. Consider in his presence what that means as well. In every age, his words have been verified in you. Have you thought lately about that phrase in Matthew twenty-eight twenty? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean? Who is this that would say that? Many frequently say today, you know, it's impossible for Jesus to be relevant in our age. Here was a Jew who came from a village that lived in the first century, and they were so far removed from what we deal with today in our high-tech 20th century cyber world. How does he know anything about what we're up against and what we're dealing with? We've got problems today that the first century never had to deal with. How can Jesus, that Jewish peasant, ever do that? There are a couple of arguments that go against that and say, I'll tell you how. The first one is this. Human hearts are still the same. Human beings are still the same. We haven't changed. We still have the same strengths, the same weaknesses, the same desires, the same hopes, the same victories, the same defeats. We still need to be saved from ourselves, not by ourselves. And secondly, we're not harking back to a dead memory. We're not talking about some uh, great teacher who lived and died and we still go by the things that he left us. We're talking about a living being. The one who's declared, Romans 1.4 says, to be Lord with power because he's risen. And the more honest we are with this matter, the more vividly we grow. The more closer we draw to that someone. He's not a mere fact of history. He's a moving memory from the past that's still alive and still relevant for today, no matter who you are, where you are. And that's not romancing. That is a strict, accurate account of what actually happens when you confront Jesus and you let him get a hold of your life and he confronts you. And the third thing I want you to notice, who is this Jesus? Let's answer the question with two things. Number one, he's truly, fully man. In John 19 and verse 5, Pilate would speak and he would say, Behold the man. And that's the first part of the answer. Behold the man, truly man. And it's crucial for salvation and for our living to realize how human Jesus really is. In John chapter 4, he's tired And he stops by the well to speak to the woman. In John chapter 11, he weeps because his friend Lazarus is dead. His soul grieves. He would ask in John 17, couldn't you stay awake and watch with me for just one hour? He needs his friends. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says he had to fight temptation. 
He suffered on the cross in, in pain and agony that a human would have. Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says, During his earthly life he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You go back and read Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 through 18. And you realize he's human. He took on the form of those he came to save. He doesn't give help, the Hebrew writer says, to angels. He gives help to the seed of Abraham. He's like us because he loves us and he wants to help us through all of that. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says, There's one mediator between God and man. Himself, man, right now, Christ Jesus. Why do you marvel, the angels would ask the disciples, as Jesus ascends into heaven. He's coming back the same way he left. That glorified man. But he's also God. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. Behold your God. The passage that was read uh, by Bob earlier in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He is the exact representation of God. John would say. Paul reiterates it in his own words. In him the fullness of deity. Godhead dwells. He's 100% God. It's always been a mystery to some. How do you get 100% man, 100% God? There's no 200% of anything. And we're not talking 200%. We're talking God. God, man, man, God. We're not supposed to figure it out. We're supposed to believe it and submit to it. A greater than Solomon is here, Jesus would say, because the claims that he made for himself are a reflection of the elements that, that picture Jesus as being God. A greater than Solomon is here. He forgives sins in Mark chapter 2. Only God can forgive sins, the Pharisees said. You're right. That's why he's able to forgive sins. He's God. Moses would ask, who shall I say sent me? And the answer would be, I am. And Jesus would respond later on. In John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. The claims that he's God. If he's he's not different in some way, where are we at? He was morally perfect. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22 that even his enemies testified to that. He never sinned nor ever deceived anybody. If he's not different from everybody else, who is he? He's the God-man and the man-God. He's the universal Savior. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. God loves all the people of the world, no matter who you are or where you're from. So that leaves us with a revelation and confession about Jesus. Saul on the road to Damascus would ask, Who are you, Lord? But he followed it up immediately. What do you want me to do? So you ask the question, Who is this Jesus? And be prepared then to ask immediately, What do you want me to do? What must I do to be saved? Thomas would confess in John chapter 20, 
especially verse 28. My Lord and my God, which literally rendered is, you are the Lord of me and the God of me. Nobody else is or ever can be. So here's the invitation we look at. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, pulls our fragmented, divisive world together as we submit to him. God neutralized all the distinctions that existed between Jew and Gentile. Jesus pulls us together in a new humanity, and yet we still try to have, we still try to have our own distinctiveness, our own cultures of race and nationality and and everything else. God made us one into a new humanity because the old humanity isn't right the way it is on its own outside of Jesus. He didn't come just to die for us, but to form a people for himself. So what does he want people to do? He wants them to repent of their sins. He wants them to be disciples and take up their cross daily and follow after him, Luke 9.23. And all the others may reject him, but it's up to you and me to realize, if we're going to be disciples, let's do it his way and follow this God-man. The first century people, they were just like us. They had problems, they had attitudes, they had temptations, they had struggles, they had anxieties, they had all kinds of things. And what God took care of for them through Jesus, he still does for us. And I like the quote when the fellow said, old preacher named James Stewart, not the actor. And he said, be reassured, if you know Jesus... You're right where you should be. Who is this Jesus? He's exactly who you need right now. If you need to be baptized into Christ and have your sins forgiven. He's exactly who you need right now. If you're calling on him as Lord, live that way. He's exactly the answer for everyone. And if you need to come and be baptized for the remission of your sins, you do that. If you just want to go and talk to some of our elders in room 104, do that. If you want to come forward and have us pray with you and love on you that way, do it that way. Because you have to answer that question, who is this Jesus? He's your Lord and Savior if you'll let him be. Let's stand and sing.